0: Hello! A quick note. The episode you're about to hear was released when this podcast operated under an old name, which was Pessimists Archive. The podcast is now called Build for Tomorrow. Okay, enjoy. This is Pessimists Archive. I'm Jason Pfeiffer. After John Munson's father passed away, his mother told him a dark family secret, something she'd kept from her husband for decades, something only she knew. And to really appreciate the power of this secret, I first need to tell you a little bit about the Munson family. So first, you should know that they live in Wisconsin, and their Wisconsin bona fides are strong. John is actually a retired broadcaster who spent 27 years working for Wisconsin Public Radio, and John's dad grew up on a dairy farm participating in one of the great industries of the state. And that means, like most Wisconsinites, John's dad had a passionate love of butter he would have never even considered eating that cheap knockoff called margarine.
1: My father always used to say, you'll never see an ad for butter that says tastes just like margarine.
0: (laughs) Which is true, as best I can tell. Wisconsin lawmakers agreed as well. Over time, the state had passed a variety of laws against margarine, which we're gonna get into later. But the point right now is that before 1967, when John was growing up, margarine was a complicated thing to buy in Wisconsin. If people wanted yellow margarine, they had to drive across state lines to Minnesota or Michigan or whatever and then sneak the stuff back in. And people did that. It was common. John knew plenty of them. But he was his dad's son. He had grown up on hashtag TeamButter, and it was butter all the way for him. He wouldn't have touched margarine either. And frankly, he still feels that way.
1: I don't like the taste of margarine. And I can always tell the difference. If you put it on a piece of toast, there is no way that you could pass that test and say that's not margarine.
0: Now, John's mom happened to be a great baker and was especially prolific with cookies. She made all sorts of cookies. She invented new cookies. And John's mom considered cooking to be a solitary act. So nobody was around in the kitchen when she made them. The baked goods would just appear in the Munson household, happily filling everyone with sugar and butter. But the decades rolled by, John became an adult, and eventually his father passed away, and that is when John's mom revealed the secret. Perhaps you see this coming.
1: Then she told me about the what was in that one kind of Christmas cookie. It was called an icebox cookie. And um I remember I remember the cookie and it was um it was a very good cookie. Uh, I didn't know it had margarine in it.
0: Yes. You heard that right. There was margarine in the cookie. There was margarine in the cookie! The enemy is within! The enemy is within! Listen to
1: me. We've traced a call. It's coming from inside the house. I the over there right now. Just get
0: out of that house. I love this story because in one little contraband cookie, we capture so much about the tangled history of margarine. You may think margarine is just a simple and weak excuse for butter, but I am telling you it's way more complicated than that. It is alternately a thing that we, as a culture, have embraced and pushed away, and then embraced and then pushed away again. Rewind to the 1800s, and margarine involves Napoleon III, a freaked-out dairy industry, and fights among lawmakers. You've got a congressman vowing to destroy margarine by any means possible. You've got states mandating that margarine be dyed black or pink so as to make it unappealing to eat, you've got hilarious dueling ad campaigns, and ultimately, for those of us interested in understanding how innovation proceeds, we are all left with one giant question. How far should one industry be allowed to go to halt change? Because margarine, I'm telling you, wasn't always so bad. It was once the solution to a lot of problems, but to some people, it was also the problem itself. So... We're going to get into the history of it all. But first, come on, John, it's time to come clean about that margarine cookie. I guess you do have to admit that it tasted good in the cookie. The
1: cookie was good, yes. And so I admit that, and that's fine. I don't think that's inconsistent, but you won't find me putting margarine on my English muffin.
0: The line has been drawn. Okay, so let's first talk about the incumbent in this battle, butter. And butter has been the reigning champion for a really, really long time. It is generally assumed that some form of butter, maybe made with yaks milk, was developed around the time that we started domesticating animals 15,000 years ago. And then, for many thousands of years, different cultures used butter not just for eating, but for all sorts of things. Hairdressing, religious ceremonies, medicine, even waterproofing.
2: Because it's greasy, oily, fatty... When water hits it, it kind of beads up, right? Yeah. You probably, you could see that on butter if you can spread it. So it was used for that, especially in the um, different sort of tents and nomadic structures that they
0: built. Imagine the ancient real estate listing. Garden level yurt, one bedroom, great views, covered in butter. Oh, and that voice you heard was Elaine, our butter historian.
2: My name is Elaine Kostrova, and I'm the author of Butter, A Rich History.
0: But despite being long beloved by eaters and yurt designers alike, Elaine says that butter had some serious downsides. So let's quickly talk about two of them. First of all, it was really labor-intensive to produce, which made it expensive once we got into more urbanized economies where people weren't just making their own butter from their own cows. In fact, the price of butter basically doubled in Europe from 1850 to 1870. Second, we're talking about an era before refrigeration. The average American didn't get a refrigerator until the 1930s, so even if you could afford to buy butter back in the late 1800s, you either have to use it really fast or risk that it goes bad. And for this same reason, it doesn't travel very well. And that, in fact, the traveling thing, is why we have margarine today— Because butter doesn't travel. And in 1869, Napoleon III was leading a French army who no doubt loved butter. I think that we can assume that. But he knew that it wasn't exactly able to be schlepped onto the battlefield.
2: He was looking for a butter substitute that was not only cheaper, you know, than the real thing, but also could travel well because he wanted to use it to feed his troops, and he was anticipating a war with Prussia at the time.
0: So in 1869, Napoleon launched a contest. Whoever can create the best butter substitute wins! Woo! A French scientist took first place with this crazy concoction made with, uh, well, uh, here's the recipe from a video produced by the Science History Institute.
3: He heated finely minced beef fat with potassium salts and fresh sheep stomach, raised the temperature to 113 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, the pepsin from the sheep stomach combined with the heat to separate the beef fat from the cellular tissue. Then he added pressure to separate the softer oils from the stearin, mixed the resulting oil with milk, water, and annatto, that's the yellow food coloring derived from seeds of the acciote tree, and voila, or... Abracadabra, something that looked and tasted like butter.
0: Mmm, you hungry yet? He called it oleomargarine, a combination of Latin and Greek words that suggested an oily, pearl-covered substance. The war with Prussia never actually came, but this butter substitute took off and quickly made its way over to America. Because, remember, this solves butter's two biggest problems at the time— It was less expensive than butter, and it kept longer. And this is really important, actually, at the time, because butter isn't something that people just like to eat the way we like to eat it now. It is something that they were relying upon.
4: If you're thinking about the early 19th century of working class person, what they had to eat was, you know, a crust of stale bread. And putting some kind of fat on that not only made it go down a little easier, but it also gave them Something else, another nutrient that they weren't getting otherwise.
0: That's Megan Elias, the director of gastronomy at Boston University. And the point she makes is really worth pausing on because it forces us to look at the first margarine in a completely different context. So maybe you, like me, were pretty grossed out by that margarine recipe with its beef fat and sheep stomach and whatever else. But we also live in a time when we are surrounded by fat. I mean, if you want fat today, all you have to do is stand still and open your mouth, and Ronald McDonald will personally walk over and shove 33 grams of fat in your mouth. That's what's in a Big Mac, by the way. So in response to all this, we've been taught to cut down on the fat from our diet.
4: I mean, nutrition was so different from what it is today. There was so much less of everything. I'm skipping around a little bit here, but there are a lot of campaigns now to stop people from drinking so much milk. And for, you know, about 50 years, there are big campaigns to get, you know, people to drink more milk. I know children need milk. And the difference is that children have a lot of other access to protein now. But in the period when they start pushing milk, that's that might be your only, a kid's only source of protein in the day.
0: Right? So in an era where there's just so much less of everything, and you're relying upon that little bit of fat from the butter, and then you can't afford the butter, uh, margarine and its fat just fills a need. It was useful. Also, margarine happened to be introduced to America during a really interesting and revolutionary time in food, and it's important to understand this as well, so you can really appreciate what people of the time were seeing when they saw margarine. So okay, uh, this is going to go on a bit of a diversion, but I promise it'll circle back, so stay with me. Okay, okay, so uh, here we go. My wife, Jen, uh, many years ago dated this guy from Alabama. Now, I, you're, now you're really wondering how this is gonna come back to the episode, but it is. All right, so uh, this guy's mom gives Jen a cookbook from her church and the cookbook is called Heavenly Bites and Jen hung onto it because it's this amazing cultural document. I actually um, I have it right here. I'm just gonna flip to something. And uh, okay, so the thing is, and, and I, I need to admit this right up front, my wife and I live in Brooklyn and we shop at like Whole Foods and Trader Joe's. We're a stereotype and we know it. We're not spending a lot of time in churches in Alabama. So this cookbook is a window into a totally alternate universe where like, and then this is this thing, everything comes from a can and it's loaded with fat. Everything in this cookbook is just coming from a can. Sometimes we flip through it and just gawk. Read the read the apple cheese casserole recipe.
4: Okay, one stick of margarine, one stick of butter, eight ounces of Velveeta cheese, three fourths cup plain flour and one can of sliced unsweetened apples.
0: That was Jen, as you can imagine. And uh, quick plug, we actually wrote a book. It's a novel called Mr. Nice Guy. You should check it out. Anyway, uh, as we read through this cookbook, you know, we think, like, what is going on here? Don't they have fresh food in Alabama? But rewind to the late 1800s, the same time as margarine is becoming popular, and you've got this other issue going on. Fresh fruits and vegetables are making people sick. And the people then didn't realize it, but this was a fertilization problem.
4: So night soil, which was the chamber pots, the contents of chamber pots was called night soil. Uh,
0: Okay, wait, Um, let, let me just translate Um, poop poop turned into fertilizer?
4: Yeah, I mean, not even really turned into fertilizer, but people would take the chamber pots and dump them onto the field.
0: Ah. But it took a while for people to make the connection between, uh, night soil and getting sick from the food that grew from night soil. So as the nation became more industrialized, they turned to industrialized food for a solution. The answer was canned food from factories where food could be trusted. And also, canned food meant that you could eat fruits and vegetables all year round and not just when they were in season in your area. So that meant that canned foods were actually pretty fancy.
4: If you made a whole meal out of stuff that you got out of cans from a supermarket, or not even a supermarket at that point, but from your grocer, you were signaling that you had disposable income. And so what to us now looks like really kind of uninspired, trashy food at the time Was
0: high status. And from that grew recipes and habits that were beloved and passed down for generations and leads to the kind of stuff my wife and I find in that cookbook. Fascinating, right? And here we were just laughing at it canned egg in our face. So this gives us a complete sense of the world into which margarine is entering. These people need a cheap source of fat that won't go bad, and they're increasingly welcoming of industrialized food as a way to solve very real health problems. And with all that said, you'd think everyone would be like, yay, margarine! Like they'd throw margarine a little margarine parade. But you know who wasn't happy? The subcommittee of the Butter and Cheese Exchange have recommended the passage
3: over the following resolutions in reference to the manufacture of artificial
0: butter. This is from the New York Times on May 2nd, 1874. The headline is Artificial Butter, and the article is just a printing of this resolution that was drawn up by the Butter and Cheese Exchange, a local trade association, which it says had been quote-unquote urgently called to address this issue. And uh, by the way, that voice who was reading it, if you are a Food Network fan, you might have been thinking, hmm, sounds familiar. Hi, my
3: name is Alex Guarnaschelli. I'm an iron chef, a judge on Chopped, and the executive chef at Butter in New York City.
0: Oh yeah, could I have found anyone more perfect to read old quotes about butter? Okay, so Alex is gonna be reading some archival stuff for us and then later on in the episode, we'll actually hear from Alex as Alex. But right now, here's Alex bringing us back to that resolution in 1874. It is of the first importance that
3: every effort be made by the trade, individually and as a body, to ensure the entire freedom from adulterants of the new crop, upon the purity of which depends the future of American butter as an article of export and, indeed, the supremacy of the dairy in our agriculture.
0: In other words, it is time to shut this thing down. The dairy industry was not about to go substituted without a fight. It started a marketing campaign aimed at politicians claiming that margarine was unhealthful and that it was made from the fat of diseased animals. And then, like the good puppets they are, many politicians picked up the message and ran with it. Senator Joseph V. Quarles of Wisconsin, for example, said, I want butter that has the natural aroma of life and health.
3: I decline to accept as a substitute call fat matured under the chill of death, blended with vegetable oils, and flavored by chemical
0: tricks. Now, not everybody was going full on anti margarine. In 1880, mocking the hysteria that the butter industry was trying to whip up, Harper's Weekly wrote that Affrighted epicures are informed that they are eating their
3: old candle ends and tallow dip remnants in the guise. Of
0: butter. But the campaign worked. By the mid-1880s, 17 states had passed some kind of law to regulate butter, and seven states outright prohibited its manufacture and sale. And the dairy industry was just getting going, which is how, in 1886, we make our way to the halls of Congress in Washington, D.C., where the House of Representatives is debating whether to, um, I think the correct term is to tax the shit out of margarine just make it so expensive that it's no longer a cheap substitute for butter. And they're they're not even hiding the motive here. It's not one of those things where politicians are like, this is going to be good for everyone, but it's really just a gift to some industry. Nah, why even hide it? This is Representative William Price, a Republican of Wisconsin.
3: If I could have the kind of legislation that I want, it would not be a source of revenue, as I would make the tax so high that the operation of the law would utterly destroy the manufacture of all counterfeit butter and cheese as I would destroy the manufacture of counterfeit coin or
0: currency. But Representative Price is, of course, from a state with a robust dairy industry. Congressmen from less dairy-focused states didn't take kindly to this argument. I went through the congressional record on this one, because that's just the kind of history dork I am, and there's amazing stuff in there. Opponents just kept throwing in amendments to prove a point, like one that would charge $10,000 to anyone who makes a glass egg, presumably because glass eggs would threaten actual eggs. And then there's this delightful little speech from Rep. George Tillman, a Democrat from South Carolina, And um, yes, I'm going to say, the laughter you're going to hear is noted in the record. The public health needs no protection against oleomargarine, which is a discovery of science for which the world ought to be grateful and proud. (laughs) Uh Aha, you laugh, but you laugh from ignorance. Half of you do not even know how to pronounce the word. (laughs) Why, when we were boys, we were taught that G before E, I, and Y has the soft sound like J, but before A, O, and U has the hard sound. Wait, what? All right, let's stop that gag right there. Tillman goes on a while longer and eventually concludes by telling the assembled lawmakers that, quote, you know about as much in regard to the materials and the method and processes of its manufacture and the science of chemistry involved in it as you know about the pronunciation, end quote. And as I was reading this and as you were listening to it, I'm sure we're all thinking the same thing, which is, wait, how were they saying margarine back then? Is Tillman saying it the way we know now or is he saying something else? So that's why I called this guy.
5: My name is Dan Jurafsky. I'm a professor at Stanford University, and I'm chair of the linguistics department here.
0: I read Dan the transcript of Tillman scolding lawmakers over their pronunciation, and he'd said, yeah, the original pronunciation of margarine was different from what we know today. It sounded like this. Margarine. Oh, actually, it's complicated. We don't
5: know if it was margarine or margarine.
0: How about that? Though Dan told me this isn't actually an especially remarkable thing, the way we pronounce and even spell a lot of our food and words changes across time. For example, uh allow me another tangent. Uh, I guess this is a the pronunciation thing is already a tangent, so allow me a tangent from a tangent. You know how ketchup has two spellings? There's catsup like C A T, and then there's ketchup with a K. Now, want to know why?
5: Ketchup it turns out to come from Chinese. It's a Chinese word originally, and um probably in chinese it was pronounced geds up or something and the british when they got to asia it was actually in indonesia not in china but they ran into ethnic chinese Uh, sellers of fish sauce, which is what ketchup originally was. And my best guess is that the Portuguese spelled it ketchup with a C and the Dutch spelled it ketchup with a K and the British got it from both of them. And we kind of had both spellings and they went back and forth in popularity, which one was more popular. And for a long time, um, the American spelling was ketchup with a C and the British spelling was ketchup with a K. And then for complicated, I think, branding reasons, Heinz picked ketchup with a K to make themselves be more distinct, and they turned out to be the, the ketchup that ended up dominating the market, and so American spelling just changed.
0: Fun, right? Okay, end of tangent. We are now back to Congress passing a tax law. The tax law gets passed. In 1886, what's known as the margarine or I guess the oleo margarine act is passed which adds a two cent per pound tax on the stuff and steep annual licensing fees for any manufacturer wholesaler or retailer who deals in margarine margarine President Grover Cleveland signs the bill 10 days later. The dairy lobbyists go on to celebrate the traditional way, which of course is to cover the outside of their yurts in butter. But is the dairy industry done? No. Next up, a state-by-state campaign to stop margarine from being dyed yellow. The dairy industry wants to make sure margarine doesn't even look like butter, that there is no confusion. A lot of states go along, banning margarine from being dyed yellow, and a few states go even further and mandate that margarine is dyed pink, red, brown, or black so that it looks as unappetizing as possible. Now, is any of this legal? Good question. That makes its way all the way up to the Supreme Court in 1898, and the court makes a ruling. Yes, you are allowed to ban margarine from being dyed yellow. But no, you can't mandate that it's colored to anything else. So. That's how, for much of America, margarine would become known as this pasty white substance. It was just banned from being yellow in a lot of states. But the margarine industry had a clever way to fight back. And before we get into that, let's pause for a moment to consider just what the hell happened. Like, what, what, what did we just witness here? Remember the context. Butter was expensive, and many people lacked fat in their diets, which meant that margarine was an affordable and nutritionally valued solution. It solved a genuine problem. And then both the federal and many state governments stepped in and said, no, if butter is going to be expensive, then margarine is going to be expensive too, and for good measure, it's going to be pink. Now, this is the reason I wanted to do this episode, to be honest with you. Pessimus Archive is about understanding the opposition to innovation, and this moment right here, with the butter industry and the government colluding to stall innovation in the food industry, captures a recurring problem. And it has a name, in fact, Regulatory Capture and I found someone who knows it well.
5: My name is Robert Galati, and I'm an assistant professor here at the Department of Political Science at the University of Chicago.
0: So when I explained the whole margarine situation to Robert, he said, yeah, that fits pretty neatly into how major industries see regulation. It's funny, we usually think of big business as opposed to regulation. It's become kind of a political religion, right? No regulation, down with regulation. Donald Trump keeps bragging about how many regulations he's eliminating. But in truth, Robert says, big industries often advocate for regulations and not just of the butter margarine type. While you might think that the big companies that are engaged, like the multinationals, that are engaged in international trade,
5: where most of the trade is being done by these multinationals would advocate for lower barriers, we actually see in many cases, in many instances, a push for stricter regulations.
0: For example, a big federal food safety act from 2009. Major food companies endorsed it. You know why? Because they could afford the fixed cost of upgrading their food safety processes and their smaller competitors wouldn't be able to. So it's like, yeah, yeah, sure, regulate us. We want to be regulated. And this creates a symbiotic relationship with politicians and industries acting in concert to stop small innovators from disrupting. So the important question now is... How does this blockage get broken? I mean, you have two powerful entities teaming up to stop innovation, which seems like a hard thing to overcome. But Robert's answer is an optimistic one. And it basically goes like this. Everything is cyclical. If
5: you have constituents that are being hurt by a barrier to to business, that creates opportunities in a political context for new entrepreneurs, basically political entrepreneurs, to oppose that regulation by arguing in favor of the
0: people that are being excluded so how did margarine get out from all of this because today spoiler alert we don't have high taxes on margarine and bing 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 it's available in yellow form in all 50 states as best i can tell three big things changed between then and now which we should look at first there was a crisis second there was a health scare and third and i think most interesting there was a change in culture all right first the crisis this one's straightforward
2: When we decided to enter World War II, suddenly all that went away and and margarine was welcomed into the marketplace because there was so little butter around.
0: Taxes that had been in place for decades were suddenly lifted. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, hey, margarine. Boy, it's it's been a while. Listen, you know, I'm throwing this party over here. I got a lot of people who can't get any butter. And gosh, it'd just be so great if you could come by. Thanks. So that's that. War equals butter shortage equals no more taxes on margarine. And the second change was a health scare. Margarine had eventually stopped being beef fat, of course, and it started being made from vegetable oil.
2: In the 50s, 60s, when people started to freak out about heart disease and and saturated fat and animal fat, and suddenly then margarine was elevated to this really high status because it was, oh my gosh, it's made with vegetable oil. It must be much better for us
0: than butter. This, of course, becomes a complicated story. Eventually, the science would flip back and find that butter has a lot of healthy benefits and margarine was unhealthy. But for decades, consumer consumption totally swapped and Americans consumed more margarine than butter. It wasn't until the past decade that butter consumption passed margarine again. Now, fun fact, the average American eats nearly six pounds of butter a year. But the third change is by far the most interesting, a shift in culture following World War II. So first to understand this, let's get situated in the moment. If you turned on the TV in the 50s, you'd have seen dueling commercials for margarine and butter, and the two of them were like people who used to date and still can't help but talk about one or the other, but they refuse to actually acknowledge it. You know what I'm talking about. Don't deny it. So all right, check out this butter commercial.
1: Just like milk belongs on your family table, so does butter. Yes, just like milk, real butter belongs on your family table, because butter makes everything It's like they're
0: subliminally screaming, margarine isn't made with milk, margarine isn't made with milk, but they don't say margarine, do they? Of course, they won't use the enemy's name, and here's how margarine advertised itself.
3: I used to use two different kinds of spreads, one for the table, the other for the kitchen. But now I use Imperial exclusively because Imperial gives me the best of both.
0: So, okay, we've got a battle of the spreads. And although the tax laws had been repealed, of course, after World War II, there were still many states that were forbidding margarine from being sold yellow. Now, remember earlier, I said that the margarine industry had a clever way to fight back against that? Here it is. The margarine industry would sell white margarine, along with a little packet of yellow food dye that people were supposed to mix in. Because that technically followed the law. The government can stop margarine manufacturers from selling a yellow product, but they can't stop consumers from dyeing it yellow themselves. And here's the thing, people actually came to enjoy this little ritual— here, for example, is this wonderful little bit from an essay by the writer Audrey Lorde. I asked my friend Ali Drucker, the sex editor at Cosmopolitan.com, to read it for reasons you'll eventually understand.
5: During World War II, we bought sealed plastic packets of white uncolored margarine with a tiny, intense pellet of yellow coloring perched like a topaz just inside the clear skin of the bag. We would leave the margarine out for a while to soften and then we would pinch the little pellet to break it inside the bag, releasing the rich yellowness into the soft, pale mass of margarine. Then, taking it carefully between our fingers, we would knead it gently back and forth, over and over, until the color had spread throughout the whole pound bag of margarine, thoroughly coloring it. I find the erotic such a kernel within myself. When released from its intense and constrained pellet, it flows through and colors my life with a kind of energy that heightens and sensitizes and strengthens all my experience.
0: That thing really takes a turn, huh? Eat your heart out, butter. And it gets even worse for that natural spread. When our butter historian Elaine Kostrova was out touring for her book, she had a recurring and really fascinating experience.
2: Elders in some of the audiences that I spoke to who remember mixing that little capsule and they were they thought at the time they were making butter that they were mixing the capsule into the margarine and they were like yeah i my 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 mother would tell me to make the butter and that's what i would do oh that's <laughs> so,
0: so fascinating yeah so they didn't they didn't think of it because like, the, the margarine Industry was basically like, yeah, screw you, government. We're going to give people yellow food coloring. But that that level of resistance didn't translate down to the consumer. They just thought they were making butter.
2: Well, no, the kid. I think the parents the knew kids. it wasn't real okay. butter. They bought it, but yeah. the kids grew up. You know, there. Are, this is a generation possibly growing up with the idea that, you know, butter was this white thing that you mixed yellow color into and. You know, there was one man who was adamant, I remember, in some audience. He's like, no, I I used to make butter by doing this, such and such. And I was like, no, I'm sorry, but
1: (laughs) that wasn't
0: really butter. It's a total delicious backfire. That law was designed to stop margarine from looking like butter, but it taught a generation of kids that margarine could be transformed into butter. And this brings us back to where we began this episode, in Wisconsin. Remember John, the guy whose mom snuck margarine into cookies she served her butter-loving husband and son? By the 1960s, Wisconsin was the very last state in America to still ban margarine from being colored yellow, which is what was sending Wisconsinites to sneak into other states to buy it. But butter's hold on the state was starting to crack. First, in 1965, a state senator tried to repeal the law, though a bunch of his colleagues opposed it. So this guy proposed a blindfold taste test, asking if his butter-loving colleagues could actually tell the difference between butter and margarine. Amazingly, 28 lawmakers agreed to participate in this, and on the front page of the Wisconsin State Journal the next day, on June 24th, 1965, the results were revealed with this headline.
3: Senator Roseleep, leading oleo foe, fails blindfold test on
0: butter. Remember back then, people still regularly used the word oleo instead of margarine. The story said that of the 28 lawmakers, 24 correctly identified butter, but Rosleap was a particular kind of blowhard, and so when he ate a bite of grade A Wisconsin butter and then said, that's oleo, and that's a direct quote, by the way, the moment immediately became infamous. Decades later, after his death, the story would get slightly sad, his family revealed that they'd been secretly giving him margarine and telling him it was butter for years because they thought it was better for his health. Oh, Senator Roseleep. Anyway, the law was repealed two years later in 1967 and replaced with this silly new law. Every single restaurant has to have butter available. You cannot, it's against the law in Wisconsin to go to a restaurant and they
5: just have margarine on the table If they just have margarine on the table. You could go to jail for 90 days.
0: That's Dale Kuyenga, a current state representative in Wisconsin. And that law he's talking about is still on the books, by the way, today. It's not actually enforced, and there's no evidence that anyone's ever gone to jail over it, but it's there on the books, and that is much to Dale's frustration. Because in 2011, he tried to repeal the law, and it kicked up a hell of a political storm. This is Wisconsin! Yes! That was sly in the morning in Wisconsin. Just They went on forever. Uh, you got the gist. <laughs> one second. Anyway, to be clear, Dale is a butter guy. He is not eating margarine. But before getting into politics, Dale was in the military and served in Iraq and watched the effort there to rebuild the rule of law. One of his main takeaways was that the rule of law has to be respected. Like, the laws have to make sense to people. And for them to make sense, they need to be simple and logical. And so we all get a good laugh. Myself, we all get a good laugh about a law like that. But what it does is when you have a series of silly laws, um, what that does over time is it really erodes the rule of law, where people look at the law as as a joke and as something that can be enforced
4: but can't be enforced. And so I think the legislative bodies across the country have—and and definitely the federal government as well—have a responsibility to go through their laws and say, does this law still make sense?
0: But Dale ultimately failed. He couldn't get enough of his colleagues to vote for the repeal. Cold logic and an academic argument about the rule of law was just no match for the political risks of doing something pro-margarine in Wisconsin. And this, Dale says, is the risk of bad laws. Once they're on the books, they're hard to scrub away. So what are we to make of all this? And I don't mean just Wisconsin. I mean all of it. The whole margarine thing, top to bottom. Honestly, as I reported this episode, I was torn. My instinct is to root for margarine because it's the newcomer. It's the, it's the innovation. And that's what I want to see more of. I want innovation and change and new ideas. But then again, margarine today is proven to be less healthy than butter. So what exactly am I rooting for here? And also, frankly, I'm a butter eater. I mean, I can't remember the last time I had margarine. So what's the point of it all? As I pondered this, I happened to be the MC of a business conference in Wisconsin. So I was standing on stage in front of a few hundred Wisconsinites, and I asked them by a show of hands how many preferred butter over margarine. Every single hand went up in the room, of course. But then something really interesting happened. After the event, I got chatting with two teenagers who were there. And so I told them I have a very important question Do you hate margarine?
4: Honestly? I prefer butter, but I'm not aggressively against margarine. Like, if someone substituted it, I don't know if I would notice.
0: What do you think? (laughs) I don't like margarine at all. So, yes, I hate margarine. Do you hate margarine because you just don't like eating margarine? Or do you feel, like, protective of butter because you're in Wisconsin? I think I'm protective of butter. Uh, See,
4: I've I've never known Wisconsin to be a super pro-butter yeah. state, yeah. but like, also, here's the thing. Margarine, gross word. Butter, super satisfying, cozy word. So
0: this crystallized it for else, me right there. Yeah, the story of margarine yeah. is an optimistic one. Consider the advantages that butter had. It had been part of human history for countless thousands of years. As an industry in the 1800s, it was powerful enough to sway the federal and most state governments to protect it. And yes, though that protectionism held for a long time, it couldn't hold forever. When you halt innovation, you create a movement of people who demand that innovation. And when you pass laws to stop a competitor, that competitor evolves and adjusts. And eventually, finally, 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 we reach a point where the old thing and the new thing can just be evaluated on their own merits, when the next generation of consumers can be totally free of restrictions and ignorant of the nonsense that came before them and just put two things up against each other and decide which one they like more. Butter didn't want a fair fight, but it eventually lost and got one. And then Butter won the fight. So it's fair to say that Butter lost and won, and we're all better for it. And that's our episode, but it is not the end of fun with butter. Stay with me in just a second. I'm going to play for you this great story that Alex Guarnaschelli from the Food Network told me about butter, which is going to change your pastry eating habits forever. I am serious about that. But first... If you love this podcast and you haven't subscribed, please, please, please do yourself and us a favor and subscribe right now on your podcast platform of choice. Just search Pessimists Archive. We always also love to hear from you. We are on Twitter at PessimistsArc, A-R-C. Our email address is pessimistsarchive at gmail.com and we're online at pessimists.co where you can find links to many of the things you heard in this episode. And I have got more credits to roll, but first... As I promised, here's Alex.
3: My little anecdote about butter is, or my little story, is that I was, uh, I lived and worked in um, a Parisian restaurant for many years, Guy Savoy, um, which was in the 17th arrondissement, and I worked there for over six years, almost seven years. Um, but after about two years, the chef de cuisine agreed to allow me to become the fish butcher, which may not sound, um, very chic to you, but it was the ultimate job for me and one that I coveted the whole time I worked there. But I was nervous and I had to lie to get the job, you know, like most good things, um, and so I told him, the chef, that I had butchered a lot of fish. I mean, many, many fish. I, I think I told him I lived on a fishing boat for years. I think I told him that you know, I was born with a can of sardines in my mouth. Whatever I said, um, I fabricated this idea and painted myself as a great butcher when, in fact, I had absolutely no experience. So um, the first few months of taking over this new job were really rough for me because I was learning how to cut fish. You know, one 50-pound turbot gets delivered if you cut it wrong. It's not like you can say, oops, and go cut another. So I would arrive at the restaurant extremely early, so I would have hours and hours of extra time to slowly, painstakingly cut every piece of fish. Um, needless to say, one day I knew I had a ton of salmon to cut for a really big party. So I woke up, I overslept and I was in a sweaty panic, you know, with the sheet marks still on my face. And I ran down the street and I jumped on the bus and I got to the restaurant, you know, in my pajamas and it was closed and I I just couldn't figure out why. Um, so I sort of wandered down the block confused trying to figure out why the restaurant was closed and the only thing that was open was this little you know pastry shop this little boulangerie and they did both bread and pastries so i went in and i said oh my god what happened i'm i'm here to you know to work at the restaurant and they said well it's it's 3am um, if you're listening to this story and you've ever done what I've just done, you know that what I infected was sort of confused night for day in my panic and woke up at like midnight thinking it was 6 a.m. and ran all the way across town. So I, I ended up with over three hours of free time to kill. So I bought a croissant, uh, and it was curved, um, as most were, or that I, and my, my memory of a croissant was always that shape, that crescent-curved, half-moon-like shape. I ate it. Um, it was good. Um, but I noticed that they had these other croissants that were straight. They weren't curved, and so I bought one of those ate that too. Um, both were delicious, but the straight one was uniquely good, um, just better. You know, I don't know how sometimes things are just, one thing is just better than the other. Turns out, um, so I asked him, why do you have different shaped croissants? And he said, well, the curved ones are made with a butter substitute and the straight ones are made with butter. And I said, is that always true? And he said, yes, that's actually an indicator in Paris for the different croissants. So I think it's interesting that the one, the straight one, who's on the straight and narrow and is delicious, is made with butter, and the crescent-shaped, curved, sort of sinister one is not. And there is my story about butter.
0: See, I told you, changing your pastry eating habits forever Thanks again to the people you heard today. That's John Munson, Elaine Kostrova, Megan Elias, Dan Jurafsky, Robert Gulati, Ali Drucker. Thanks also to Lee Grady at the Wisconsin Historical Society, to Biz360, the event in Wisconsin I spoke at, and of course, to the teenagers I talked to afterwards. Their names are...
4: Olivia Patterson, 17 years old, Delavan, Wisconsin.
0: (laughs) Giovanni Cruz, 18 years old, Delavan, Wisconsin. (laughs) Our theme music is by Casper Babypants, and you can learn more at babypantsmusic.com. The other music you heard in this episode is by Lee Rose. Rosevear, Jazar, Tachyon, Art of Escapism, and The Joy Drops. Pessimist Archive team is Louis Anslow, Chris Cornelis, and a big shout out to our newest member, Elizabeth Breyer. Thanks again for listening. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, and we'll see you in the near future.